0: Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 50 of Reading Cadence. I'm your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Today, we get to explore the tumultuous world of war and peace with chapters 9 and 10 of book 2, where Russian propaganda is toying with Austria once again. And Prince Andrew, poor Prince Andrew, gets stuck in the middle of it. Let us begin. Chapter 9 Pursued by the French army of a hundred thousand men, under the command of Bonaparte, encountering a population that was unfriendly to it, losing confidence in its allies, suffering from shortness of supplies, and, compelled to act under conditions of war, unlike anything that had been foreseen. The Russian army of 35,000 men, commanded by Kutuzov, was hurriedly retreating along the Danube, stopping where overtaken by the enemy, and fighting rearguard actions only as far as necessary to enable it to retreat without losing its heavy equipment. There had been actions at Lambach, Amsterdam, and Melk, but despite the courage and endurance acknowledged even by the enemy with which the russians fought the only consequence of these actions was a yet more rapid retreat austrian troops that had escaped capture at ulm and had joined Kutuzov at brenau now separated from the russian army and katuzov was left with only his own weak and exhausted forces the defense of vienna was no longer to be thought of. Instead of an offensive, the plan of which, carefully prepared in accord with the modern science of strategics, had been handed to Kutuzov when he was in Vienna by the Austrian Hofkriegsrath, the sole and almost unattainable aim remaining for him was to effect a junction with the forces that were advancing from Russia without losing his army, as Mack had done at all. On the 28th of October, Kututsov with his army crossed to the left bank of the Danube and took up a position for the first time with the river between himself and the main body of the French. On the 30th, he attacked Mortier's division, which was on the left bank, and broke it up. In this action, for the first time, trophies were taken. Banners, cannon, and two enemy generals... For the first time, after a fortnight's retreat, the Russian troops had halted, and after a fight, had not only held the field, but had repulsed the French. Though the troops were ill-clad, exhausted, and had lost a third of their number in killed, wounded, sick, and stragglers, though a number of sick and wounded had been abandoned on the other side of the Danube with a letter in which Kutuzov entrusted them to the humanity of the enemy, And though the big hospitals and the houses in Cremes converted into military hospitals could no longer accommodate all the sick and wounded, yet the stand made at Cremes and the victory over Mortier raised the spirits of the army considerably. Throughout the whole army and at headquarters, most joyful though erroneous rumors were rife of the imaginary approach of columns from Russia, of some victory gained by the Austrians, and of the retreat of the frightened Bonaparte. Prince Andrew during the battle had been in attendance on the Austrian General Schmidt, who was killed in the action. His horse had been wounded under him, and his own arm slightly grazed by a bullet. As a mark of the commander-in-chief's special favor, he was sent with the news of this victory to the Austrian court, now no longer at Vienna, which was threatened by the French. But at Brunn. despite his apparently delicate build, Prince Andrew could endure physical fatigue far better than many very muscular men, and on the night of the battle, Having arrived at Krems excited but not weary with dispatches from Doktorov to Kututsov, he was sent immediately with a special dispatch to Brun. To be so sent means not only a reward, but an important step toward promotion. The night was dark but starry. The road showed black in the snow that had fallen the previous day the day of the battle. Reviewing his impressions of the recent battle, picturing pleasantly to himself the impression his news of victory would create, or recalling the send-off given him by the commander-in-chief and his fellow officers, Prince Andrew was galloping along in a post-chaise enjoying the feelings of man who has at length begun to attain a long-desired happiness as soon as he closed his eyes his ears seemed filled with the rattle of the wheels and the sensation of a victory then he began to imagine that the russians were running away and that he himself was killed but he quickly roused himself with a feeling of joy as if learning afresh that this was not so but that on the contrary the french had run away He again recalled all the details of the victory and his own calm courage during the battle, and feeling reassured, he dozed off. The dark, starry night was followed by a bright, cheerful morning. The snow was thawing in the sunshine. The horses galloped quickly, and on both sides of the road were forests of different kinds, fields, and villages. At one of the post stations, he overtook a convoy of Russian wounded. The Russian officer in charge of the transport lolled back in the front cart, shouting and scolding a soldier with coarse abuse. In each of the long German carts, six or more pale, dirty, bandaged men were being jolted over the stony road. Some of them were talking. He heard Russian words. Others were eating bread. The more severely wounded looked silently, with the languid interest of sick children, at the envoy hurrying past them. Prince Andrew told his driver to stop and asked a soldier in what action they had been wounded. "'Day before yesterday, on the Danube,' answered the soldier. Prince Andrew took out his purse and gave the soldier three gold pieces.' That's for them all, he said to the officer who came up. Get well soon, lads, he continued, turning to the soldiers. There's plenty to do still. What news, sir? asked the officer, evidently anxious to start a conversation. Good news. Go on, he shouted to the driver, and they galloped on. It was already quite dark when Prince Andrew rattled over the paved streets of Brunn, and found himself surrounded by high buildings, the lights of shops, houses, and street lamps, fine carriages, and all that atmosphere of a large and active town which is always so attractive to a soldier after camp life. Despite his rapid journey and sleepless night, Prince Andrew, when he drove up to the palace, felt even more vigorous and alert than he had done the day before. Only his eyes gleamed feverishly, and his thoughts followed one another with extraordinary clearness and rapidity. He again vividly recalled the details of the battle, no longer dim, but definite, and in the concise form in which he imagined himself stating them to the Emperor Francis. He vividly imagined the casual questions that might be put to him, and the answers he would give. He expected to be at once presented to the Emperor. At the chief entrance to the palace, however, an official came running out to meet him, and learning that he was a special messenger, led him to another entrance. To the right of the corridor, Juror Hockenboring, there you will find the adjutant on duty, said the official. He will conduct you to the Minister of War. The adjutant on duty, meeting Prince Andrew, asked him to wait, and went into the Minister of War. Five minutes later, he returned, and bowing with particular courtesy, ushered Prince Andrew before him along the corridor to the cabinet where the Minister of War was at work. The adjutant, by his elaborate courtesy, appeared to wish to ward off any attempt at familiarity on the part of the Russian messenger. Prince Andrew's joyous feeling was considerably weakened as he approached the door of the minister's room. He felt offended, and without his noticing it, the feeling of offense immediately turned into one of disdain, which was quite uncalled for. His fertile mind instantly suggested to him a point of view which gave him a right to despise the adjutant and the minister, Away from the smell of powder, and they probably think it easy to gain victories, he thought. His eyes narrowed disdainfully. He entered the room of the minister of war with peculiarly deliberate steps. This feeling of disdain was heightened when he saw the minister seated at a large table reading some papers and making pencil notes on them, and for the first two or three minutes, taking no notice of his arrival. A wax candle stood at each side of the minister's bent, bald head with its grey temples. He went on reading to the end, without raising his eyes at the opening of the door and the sound of footsteps. "'Take this and deliver it,' said he to the adjutant, handing him the papers and still taking no notice of the special messenger. Prince Andrew felt that either the actions of Kvitutsov's army interested the Minister of War less than any of the other matters he was concerned with, or he wanted to give the Russian special messenger that impression. But that is a matter of perfect indifference to me, he thought. The minister drew the remaining papers together, arranged them evenly, and then raised his head. He had an intellectual and distinctive head, but the instant he turned to Prince Andrew, the firm, intelligent expression on his face changed in a way evidently deliberate and habitual to him. His face took on this stupid, artificial smile, which does not even attempt to hide its artificiality, of a man who is continually receiving many petitioners, one after another. From General Field Marshal Kutuzov? he asked. I hope it's good news. There has been an encounter with Mortier? A victory? It was high time. He took the dispatch which was addressed to him and began to read it with a mournful expression. Oh, my God! my God! Schmidt! he exclaimed in German. What a calamity! What a calamity! Having glanced through the dispatch, he laid it on the table and looked at Prince Andrew, evidently considering something. Ah, what a calamity! You say the affair was decisive? But Mortier is not captured! Again, he pondered, I'm very glad you have brought good news, though... Schmidt's death is a heavy price to pay for the victory. His Majesty will no doubt wish to see you, but not today. I thank you. You must have a rest. Be at the levee tomorrow, after the parade. However, I will let you know. The stupid smile, which had left his face while he was speaking, reappeared. Avra, thank you very much. His Majesty will probably desire to see you, he added, bowing his head. When Prince Andrew left the palace, he felt that all the interest and happiness the victory had afforded him had been now left in the indifferent hands of the Minister of War and the polite adjutant. The whole tenor of his thoughts instantaneously changed. The battle seemed the memory of a remote event, long past. End of chapter nine. Chapter 10. Prince Andrew stayed at Brunn with Bilbin, a Russianer acquaintance of his in the diplomatic service. Ah, my dear prince, I could not have a more welcome visitor, said Bilbin as he came out to meet Prince Andrew. Franz, Put the prince's things in my bedroom, said he to the servant who was ushering Bolkonsky in. So, you're a messenger of victory, eh? Splendid, and I am sitting here ill, as you see. After washing and dressing, Prince Andrew came into the diplomat's luxurious study and sat down to the dinner prepared for him. Bilbin settled down comfortably beside the fire. After his journey and the campaign, during which he had been deprived of all the comforts of cleanliness and all the refinements of life, Prince Andrew felt a pleasant sense of repose among luxurious surroundings, such as he had been accustomed to from childhood. Beside it was pleasant, after his reception by the Austrians, to speak, if not in Russian, for they were speaking French, at least with a Russian who would, he supposed, share the general Russian antipathy to the Austrians, which was then particularly strong. Bilbin was a man of 35, a bachelor, and of the same circle as Prince Andrew. They had known each other previously in Petersburg, but had become more intimate when Prince Andrew was in Vienna with Kututsov. Just as Prince Andrew was a young man who gave promise of rising high in the military profession, so to an even greater extent, Bilbin gave promise of rising in his diplomatic career. He was still a young man, but no longer a young diplomat. As he had entered the service at the age of 16, had been in Paris and Copenhagen, and now held a rather important post in Vienna. Both the foreign minister and our ambassador in Vienna knew him and valued him. He was not one of those many diplomats who are esteemed because they have certain negative qualities, avoid doing certain things and speak French. He was one of those who, liking work, knew how to do it, and despite his indolence, would sometimes spend a whole night at his writing table. He worked well, whatever the import of his work. It was not the question, what for, but the question, how, that interested him. What the diplomatic matter might be, he did not care, but it gave him great pleasure to prepare a circular memorandum or report skillfully, pointedly, and elegantly. Bilbin's services were valued not only for what he wrote, but also for his skill in dealing and conversing, with those in the highest spheres. Bilbin liked conversation as he liked work, only when it could be made elegantly witty. In society, he always awaited an opportunity to say something striking and took part in conversation only when that was possible. His conversation was always sprinkled with wittily original, finished phrases of general interest, These sayings were prepared in the inner laboratory of his mind, in a portable form, as if intentionally, so that insignificant society people might carry them from drawing room to drawing room. And, in fact, Bilbin's witticisms were hawked about in the Viennese drawing rooms and often had an influence on matters considered important. His thin, worn, sallow face was covered with deep wrinkles, which always looked as clean and well-washed as the tips of one's fingers after a Russian bath. The movement of these wrinkles formed the principal play of expression on his face. Now his forehead would pucker into deep folds, and his eyebrows were lifted. Then... His eyebrows would descend, and deep wrinkles would crease his cheeks. His small, deep-set eyes always twinkled and looked out straight. Well now, tell me about your exploits, said he. Bolkonsky, very modestly without mentioning himself, described the engagement and his reception by the Minister of War. "'They received me in my news as one receives a dog in a game of Skittles,' said he in conclusion. Bilbin smiled, and the wrinkles on his face disappeared. "'But my dear fellow,' he remarked, examining his nails from a distance and puckering the skin above his left eye, "'with all my respect for the orthodox Russian army,' I must say that your victory was not particularly victorious. He went on talking in this way in French, uttering only those words in Russian on which he wished to put a contemptuous emphasis. Come now, you with all your forces, fall on the unfortunate Mortier in his one division, and even then Mortier slips through your fingers. "'Where's the victory?' "'But seriously,' said Prince Andrew, "'we can at any rate say without boasting "'that it was a little better than at Ulm. "'Why didn't you capture one, just one, Marshal, for us?' "'Because not everything happens as one expects "'or with the smoothness of a parade. "'We had expected, as I told you, "'to get at their rear by seven in the morning.' but had not reached it by five in the afternoon. "'And why didn't you do it at seven in the morning? "'You ought to have been there at seven in the morning,' returned Bilbin with a smile. "'You ought to have been there at seven in the morning.' "'Why did you not succeed in impressing on Bonaparte "'by diplomatic methods that he had better leave Genoa alone?' retorted Prince Andrew in the same tone." "'I know,' interrupted Bilbin. "'You're thinking it very easy to take marshals sitting on a sofa by the fire.' "'That is true, but still, why didn't you capture him? "'So don't be surprised if not only the Minister of War, "'but also his most august majesty, the Emperor, and King Francis, "'is not much delighted by your victory. "'Even I, a poor secretary of the Russian embassy, do not feel any need in token of my joy to give my France a thaler or let him go with his leapkin to the praetor. True, we have no praetor here. He looked straight at Prince Andrew and suddenly unwrinkled his face. It is now my turn to ask you why, mon cher, said Bolkonski. I confess, I do not understand. Perhaps there are diplomatic subtleties here beyond my feeble intelligence, but I can't make it out. Mack loses a whole army. The Archduke Ferdinand and the Archduke Karl give no signs of life and make blunder after blunder. Kutuzov, alone at last, gains a real victory, destroying the spell of the invincibility of the French. And the minister of war does not even care to hear the details. That's just it, my dear fellow. You see, it's a hurrah for the Tsar, for Russia, for the Orthodox Greek faith. All that is beautiful. But what do we, I mean, the Austrian court, care for your victories? Bring us nice news of victory by the Archduke Karl or Ferdinand. One Archduke's as good as another, as you know. And even if it is only over a fire brigade of Bonaparte's, that will be another story and will fire off some cannon. But this sort of thing seems to be done on purpose to vex us. The Archduke Karl does nothing. The Archduke Ferdinand disgraces himself. You abandon Vienna. Give up its defense. As much as to say... Heaven is with us, but heaven help you and your capital. The one general whom we all loved, Schmidt, you exposed to a bullet, and then you congratulate us on the victory. Admit that more irritating news than yours could not have been conceived. It's as if it had been done on purpose. On purpose. Besides... Suppose you did gain a brilliant victory. If even the Archduke Karl gained victory, what effect would that have on the general course of events? It's too late now, when Vienna is occupied by the French army. What? Occupied? Vienna occupied? Not only occupied, but Bonaparte is at Schoenbrunn, and the Count... Our dear Count Verbna goes to him for orders. After the fatigues and impressions of the journey, his reception, and especially after having dined, Bolkonski felt that he could not take in the full significance of the words he heard. Count Lichtenfels was here this morning, Bilbin continued, and showed me a letter in which The parade of the French in Vienna was fully described. Prince Marat, El toi le treblé. You see that your victory is not a matter for grace rejoicing, and that you can't be received as a savior. Really, I don't care about that. I don't care at all, said Prince Andrew, beginning to understand that his news of the battle before Krems was really of small importance in view of such events as the fall of Austria's capital. How is it Vienna was taken? What of the bridge and its celebrated bridgehead and Prince Aursburg? We heard reports that Prince Aursburg was defending Vienna, he said. Prince Aursburg is on this side, on our side of the river, and is defending us, doing it very badly, I think, but still. He is defending us, but Vienna is on the other side. No, the bridge has not yet been taken, and I hope it will not be, for it is mined, and orders have been given to blow it up. Otherwise, we should long ago have been in the mountains of Bohemia, and you and your army would have spent a bad quarter of an hour between two fires. But still, this does not mean that the campaign is over said prince andrew well i think it is the big wigs here think so too but they daren't say so it will be as i said at the beginning of the campaign it won't be your skirmishing at Duringstein, or gunpowder at all that will decide the matter but those who devised it said bilbin quoting one of his own moths releasing the wrinkles on his forehead and pausing The only question is what will become of the meeting between the Emperor Alexander and the King of Prussia in Berlin. If Prussia joins the Allies, Austria's hand will be forced, and there will be war. If not, it is merely a question of settling where the preliminaries of the new Campo Formio are to be drawn up. What an extraordinary genius! Prince Andrew suddenly exclaimed clenching his small hand and striking the table with it and what luck the man has boo on apart said bilbin inquiringly puckering up his forehead to indicate that he was about to say something witty boo on apart he repeated accentuating the u I think, however, now that he lays down laws for Austria at Schoenbrunn. We must let him off the U. I shall certainly adopt an innovation and call him simply Bonaparte. But joking apart, said Prince Andrew, do you really think the campaign is over? This is what I think. Austria has been made a fool of, and she is not used to it. She will retaliate, and she has been fooled in the first place because her provinces have been pillaged. They say the Holy Russian Army loots terribly. Her army is destroyed, her capital taken, and all this for the fine eyes of his Sardinian majesty. And therefore, this is between ourselves, I instinctively feel that we are being deceived My instinct tells me of negotiations with France and projects for peace. A secret peace concluded separately. Impossible, cried Prince Andrew. That would be too base. If we live, we shall see, replied Bilbin, his face again becoming smooth as a sign that the conversation was at an end. When Prince Andrew reached the room prepared for him, and lay down in a clean shirt on the feather bed with its warmed and fragrant pillows. He felt that the battle of which he had brought tidings was far, far away from him. The alliance with Prussia, Austria's treachery, Bonaparte's new triumph, tomorrow's levy and parade, and the audience with the Emperor Francis occupied his thoughts. He closed his eyes and immediately a sound of cannonading of musketry and the rattling of carriage wheels seemed to fill his ears and now again drawn out in a thin line the musketeers were descending the hill the french were firing and he felt his heart palpitating as he rode forward beside schmidt with the bullets merrily whistling all around and he experienced tenfold the joy of living as he had not done since childhood. He woke up. Yes, that all happened, he said, and smiling happily to himself like a child, he fell into a deep, youthful slumber. End of chapter 10 Oh, this is too rich because (laughs) Prince Andrew is essentially sent to the Austrian court in Brunn by the Russians, by Kututsov, to gloat to the Austrians in what is seen as massive Russian propaganda for a victory won, not by the Austrians, but by the Russians, When they are pursued by Napoleon's French forces. And Prince Andrew doesn't even realize it. He buys in. He's still young. He still buys into the Russian propaganda. He still believes that Russia can do no ill. And he still remains innocent to Russia and Austria's little petty back and forth with one another russia is now going to go even further as prince andrew learns from bilibin by making a potential secondary alliance with prussia which russia knows is austria's known bitter enemy so now there's this little mini three-way conflict going on where russia who is clearly the more powerful force in this situation, I mean, Austria's not going to do much. Come on, like this is Russia we're talking about. But if you don't know the Austrian Prussia conflict, in a brief like thirty thousand foot view, is that Prussia is what is now known as Germany. It was comprised of many many states back then. They were seeking a land grab for Austria, and so as you can as you can note. These two guys were not, like, necessarily friends. But, as the other old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And their common enemy is Bonaparte, is France. So, for the sake of defeating that dude so that they can go back to their own internal conflict, I I mean, I'd hazard to think that Even though this is going to be a pretty rickety alliance, I think that they'll be willing to part with their differences for a little bit. And they're probably like, we'll start our land war once France gets their act together and goes back to where they came, you know, type of thing. And they'll probably do it. But I just love how Russia's just stoking these tensions between these two countries and is continuing to promote itself um, in the most ubiquitous way and poor Andrew is caught in the middle of this and he doesn't even know it and now when he realizes that Austria has fallen he he quickly tries to come to the defense of Russia but uh, you know Russia did quote unquote all they could but let's face it here the capital of Austria right now is not in Vienna. It's in Brunn. So, something happened there, let's just say. Oh, I love it. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. And, as they say in show business, that's all he wrote.